This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Welcome to this week's Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, for those who are new to the show or don't know, my name is Adam Wheeler. I write for On Track Off-Road and The Telegraph when they can be bothered about motorcycle racing. I'm pleased to be joined by Mr. David Emmett. Hello, Adam. Hello. Uh, Dave, have you finished your write-up for motomatters.com? Can people check it out yet, or are you very busy no, I got, still? I got uh, about a little bit more than halfway through, and it was 2 o'clock, and I needed some sleep, so I went to sleep because well, I was coming in early for this podcast. Uh, Neil, not only are you Mr. Neil Morrison, of course, the voice of Moto2 and Moto3 on the Wealthy, but also um, a deft hand at many other, uh, contributing to many other media titles. How's your workload? Uh, stressful. Monday mornings are always pretty stressful, Ed, but i um, delighted to say I'm uh, sitting in front of you gentlemen. Well, that's just it. It's Monday morning. Uh, you probably won't be able to hear it on the audio, but, but there are MotoGP bikes going around. Just next to us, we're in a little annex in the media center here at the Hereth Circuit and uh, MotoGP testing. Dave, the first one-day test of the season underway, the only one, I believe. Is Mizano down on the schedule this year? I can't remember. Yes, Mizano. There's uh, just two in-season tests um, uh, here, Jerez, and then in Mizano. Normally, we have one in Barcelona. But given that Barcelona is, I think, the week before uh, uh, Mizano, there's not a lot of point in doing it. So this is uh, obviously the Paddock Pass podcast show for this week. Post Hereth, we're talking about the Grand Prix. Uh, thanks ever so much to Rental Street as ever, as you heard at the top of the show. Get all your accessories for your street bike, not just your dirt bike on rental.com uh, also thanks to KTM we've got some KTM back in on the podcast this year uh, the guys have produced a new uh, 12, KTM 1290 Super Duke Double R the, the beast uh, fantastic motorcycle can I just point out that since uh, KTM have decided to sponsor the podcast they've been doing absolutely fabulously so um, any other sponsors out there if you want to succeed the, uh, the key is quite obviously to give us money Yes, uh, Mr. Lynn Jarvis, uh, you know, all of Yamaha know us pretty well. Just come and find us because I'm sure we'll be able to boost your championship hopes. Yeah, Alberto Puig has our number. Yeah, maybe we could uh, alternate between Yamaha and Honda shows. I mean, there we go, Dave. You, you tapped yeah. into... Alberto and Puig has our number in every sense of that particular phrase. <laughs> <laughs> the 37th running of the Grand Prix here in Jerez. Uh, good crowd, sweaty, crowd. sweaty weather. Um, and that brings us to... Um, you know, your your moment of the weekend, Dave. Yeah, I mean, my moment of the weekend, um, I went out in the morning, warm up, just to sort of watch the bikes go out. I hadn't been had a, had a chance to look at the bikes on track. Um, and even though it's only 10 minutes, it's not very long. But um, then I saw that you were coming out and we walked down together down towards, back towards turn 10 um to see the rider shag wagon um trailing the uh <laughs> that, that's not the official name i'm not sure what the but i can't remember the official name so that's what i'm calling it for the moment but uh, um uh, t- taking the rider around we've seen it at other circuits and it's looked a, li- a little bit um forlorn. yeah a bit forlorn um but coming around here with the the crowd i mean the track was packed it wasn't completely full when we were uh when we were sort of got here this morning by the time the race started it was absolutely packed to the rafters the atmosphere was absolutely electric just fantastic i mean i'm getting um, i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it again um the riders also, it really electrified the riders as well. You could really see that they got into it. They were, you know, sort of sweeping the crowd up into whipping them into a frenzy. It was really enjoyable. It was magic. It was, you know, 
what motor racing is supposed to be. I was a bit of a, uh, I was a bit of a skeptic. Um, I still think there's places where it's not going to work, but places like here, places like Lamar, places like Aston or Saxon, it's going to be absolutely spectacular. Yes, yeah, it was a contrast to the Grand Prix in Portimao, where you think the riders, when they had the t-shirt cannons, were actually having fun trying to aim, uh, taking out a spectator or two, because <laughs> there was not a great deal of people to aim for. But then uh, this was like, you know, it was a football crowd. It was typical Hareth. Yep. I mean, we, we normally say, I think even we did a show, didn't we, saying which event should you visit? And Jerez, okay, it's one of three Spanish Grand Prix on the calendar, but uh, the atmosphere and, and, and the climate, you know, the expectation, uh, everything comes together. It makes, you know, a memorable Grand Prix. I think everybody likes coming here, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you could tell, even if you didn't come to the track, you could tell being in the city at nighttime that this was a proper weekend with lots of things going on, music concerts in various different squares around the city. Uh, the place was rammed from, I think, Friday, I could see. Um, and yeah, you just, it was, it was really nice on Saturday to see so many people in for the sprint. Um, I mean, I think the, the attendance on Saturday here was bigger than the attendance on race day last year, on Sunday last year. Um, and yeah, I came away walking from the, the commentary box down to the, the media center, looking at the packed grandstands on Saturday, thinking like, this is, a, this feels like a proper event. And it's, I guess it's been a while since I felt that way. Even Arcos, tiny little, oh, well, quite a small little touristic uh, town up north. It's um, easier to get to than the center of Jerez, but it's quite a small little little town packed with fans. Uh, we, I think we waited, had to wait for 40 minutes for our um, uh, rather magnificent pizza baked for us by people from uh, very close to Mugello. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's bikes there, people revving their engines, all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's been a real party atmosphere everywhere. It's slickly organised as well. I mean, getting into the circuit, getting out. I know there was some rumours of traffic problems, but also that was associated with some sort of protest movement, I think, on Saturday. But, you know, it was quite seamless. You know, whether you're coming in early doors where it's still dark, where... The grandstand area, the Palouse section was already pretty full, as it tends to be traditionally. Um, but yeah, for the rest, of, you know, you can tell that this is a town, a circuit and an organization that knows how to run a Grand Prix event and, and something of this size. We're talking about things that happen off the track, but on the track, uh, Neil, what caught your eye? Uh, yeah, my moment of the weekend was in the sprint. I think it was three laps from the checkered flag in the sprint race and it was Brad Binder's move on Jack Miller into the Danny Pedrosa corner, uh, formerly known as the dry sack corner. Um, and the fact that his bike was in a position that was not too dissimilar from uh, someone riding Speedway um, sort of made this particularly stand out. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't just one lap that Brad was doing this. He was doing this pretty much all weekend. And to be fair, it wasn't just him. It was also Jack who was able to make these kind of crazy shapes with the KTM as well in the heavy braking zones. But Binder's poof on Jack was sensational. Um, and... Uh, just showed that in a kind of scrap this guy is really gonna is really gonna take some beating in some of the sprint races we have this year we saw him get pipped to the post right at the end of the the, the feature race but um yeah binder i mean he, he looks like he's going to be a guy that's going to rack up a whole load of uh, victories in the sprints this year um and i don't know can we count him as a title contender? I'm not sure. Maybe it's a bit premature to say that, but um, you know, certainly a fantastic weekend for him, and that was, uh, I think, that was the the, the crown moment of his uh, performance in Jerez. Well, as we said on the no show, Binder's won two sprints now. That's 24 points. I mean, that's you know almost a Grand Prix victory. Uh, you know, I don't think it's to, to be sniffed. At. And he's also up to what third in the World Championship now on the back of this yeah. weekend and those those if, points accumulated. If, if he can win a lot of sprints and uh, end up on the podium or close to the podium in the uh, in the Grand Prix, uh, he's a serious, serious contender. 
Yeah, um, I think the people around him in the championship, obviously Banyaya is first, but you've got Bezeki, Miller, Vinales, and no disservice to those guys, but I think Binder out of them would be the guy you would fancy taking maybe the, the, the challenge to Peko. We'll come on to KTM in a moment because they're undoubtedly one of the big talking points from this Grand Prix and we were fortunate enough to get some time with Francesco Guidotti, the team manager of Red Bull KTM. Uh, he's going to give us some words here on the podcast as well as Paolo Chiabatti, Dave, who you managed to find eventually between the trucks uh, outside the Ducati garage on Sunday afternoon. But my moment of the weekend um, involved a Ducati rider. It was um, same corner nil, uh, dry sack, turn six, Danny Pedrosa, whatever it's being called now. Uh, and Benai's move on to Miller. I think... Uh, you know, it was close. It, it, people were saying, did it deserve a penalty? Bagnaia had to lose one position. Uh, it seemed overly harsh. It was another example of little flashpoints during the race, during the weekend, where people were looking at race direction and the, the decisions they were making. And um, I, I thought it was obviously as representative of that particular you know, trend of this Grand Prix. But in terms of action, I thought it was great. I mean, the two are friends. They were t- former teammates. Um, you know, Miller was waving his hand and complaining. Bagnaia was apologizing, apologizing. I think all of us just thought, crack on, lads. This is great stuff. Yeah, uh, the, yes. The uh, the fear for me, I mean, to me, it looked like a hard but clean pass. Uh, it was exactly the kind of thing you do want to see in racing. Um if you keep punishing these, you're not going. To, you're not going to see them. It's it, it's incomprehensible to me that they made them uh, that they made Pe- Peko drop a pass. Uh, Jorge Martin was saying, well, you know, like uh, Peko had to drop a, pa- a place on uh, for, uh, for Jack Miller, um, but Jack Miller didn't have to drop a place when he when he passed um, uh, Jorge Martin. So, yeah, the, the, the again, this is something we'll talk about. The inconsistency was stupid, and I think also you have to let the guys race. Most people, with the exception of, of Alicia Spargaro, uh, felt that that shouldn't have had a penalty. On Thursday in the press conference, Peko Bagnaia was taking questions about his concentration, his focus. He's slipped off in the last two Grand Prix uh, in Cota Nil from a winning position. And I, uh, maybe he addressed some of the doubts that were being thrown his way. I mean, do we think that Bagnaia is back to a degree because... This performance again, his second consecutive win at Jerez, his second consecutive win by less than a second. Uh, he faced terrific pressure from Brad Binder there on the last lap. And, you know, he rode like a world champion. It was it was impressive stuff. Ducati's third win now in a row here. Yeah, this was a, a proper champion's ride. Uh, not just from Banyaya to hold his concentration, to hold his nerves. Uh, I know we'll, we'll hear from Paolo uh, Ciabatti later on. Ciabatti uh, was basically saying, you know, like we were worried he had crashed the last couple of times and you sort of like fingers crossed, let's please, please, please don't do it again. Um, but it was also from his team as well because on Friday he was in real trouble. Uh, he was slow. He didn't understand why. He had no feeling from the front of the bike. Um, but the advantage of having so many riders on the grid is you have so much data. Um, they looked at the data from other riders. Uh, they made a few changes. Uh, that got Pecco onto the sprint race, onto the podium in the sprint race. Uh, and just, he was just outstanding. They really fixed all of his problems by, by Sunday. A fantastic ride, also a very, very controlled ride. You know, when he needed to 
push. He pushed. Um, he was the only rider to do a 37. Managed to open a gap, or well, managed to really close down Binder. And then when he got past Binder, he was also able to hold Binder off. Uh, he he could just keep enough distance between him, him and Binder for Binder to not be able to make a pass. You could see Binder thinking about it. And we were sort of hoping that he would, mm. um, but he was never quite close enough. I, I thought this was, you know, one of the, one of his best rides for a while. Yeah, the U-turn in potential, like you say, Dave, across the weekend was another impressive thing. Not not just from Bagnaya's performance, but from the team as a whole. I mean, that that is a real sign of potential for the rest of the season because they are going to find themselves in more problem spots. Neil, you must have been loving it because I know you wanted to talk about, you know, his move on Jorge Martin and the line that he had coming out of six and going through seven as well, where it was kind of outside, inside. I mean, Bagnaya could put the Ducati where he wanted on the track. Yeah, exactly. And I thought that first lap move on Martin sort of demonstrated the kind of strength of one rider and the weakness of another because um, for me, it was pretty clear after watching the sprint that the KTMs were going to get the jump and... In the sprint, you could say that Martin, Bagnaia and Aleish had better pace than the two KTMs. So for me on Sunday, it was about who from those three can make the swiftest progress through them. And it was obviously going to be Bagnaia because I don't think Martin quite has that sussed out, that real aggression in his riding. And Aleish is obviously saying that the Aprilia is a fantastic, but a little bit like the Emma is a fantastic bike when it's alone on track. But when it's in a battle, especially here at Hareth with searing temperatures, front tire Temperature was an issue for pretty much everyone in the in the race that wasn't um, out in front. Um, yeah, I thought Benyai was the guy that was definitely had the potential to get through that, and he showed pretty much from the first lap that he could be creative in ways to overtake that those other guys couldn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, he was t- taking risks, but as Dave said, controlled risks. There was a lot of things that kind of went against him in that race, like the penalty. I mean, he had to lose, what, one second, maybe, when he was given that position to, to Miller when he um, pulled off at the side of turn one. Miller actually thought the Pekka had broken down. Um, and yeah, he remained, you know, totally cool in that sort of situation, and it was uh, it was really good. I mean, he really impressed me at Malaysia last year because of the stakes in that weekend, um, you know, fighting for the championship. Everything was on the line. But I think just behind that, you would have to put this performance because it was yeah. it was brilliant. Like it was really like, as, as Dave said, it was the mark of a champion. Yeah. It was another pressure cooker, you know, pull mm. it out of the bag. But uh, Dave, one thing I want to ask you actually is because this was a Bagnaya weekend, wasn't it? It wasn't a Ducati weekend. You know, there was not reams of Ducati floating around the top and fighting for podium victories. You know, we didn't see such competitiveness from the Mooney VR46 boys. Yeah, Joanne Zarco crashed out. Jorge Martin was one of several riders complaining about front tire temperature, not just the pressure. So there was, you know, obviously something slightly off there. I mean, this was uh, the Bagnai Masterclass. And then sadly, Inea Bestianini tried to ride this weekend, gave it a go on Friday, but still not fit from that uh, broken shoulder blade. No, exactly. It was interesting that uh, Lupa really pointed out on, uh, I think on Saturday, that... Um, Everyone else had tested here uh, before Austin, uh, but not Ducati. Michele Piro was the only test rider not to be here. Ducati were the only factory, so they started without a lot of data. They came, uh, you know, they, they soon caught up um, because of the number of bikes. But yeah, I mean, like it was, it was a good weekend for Ducati. They did reasonably, but they didn't do fantastic. So yeah, this was very much sort of Banyai's work. One of the things which I found interesting in the, I think it was your question in, um, uh, in the press conference asking, uh, Banyai sort of like where to, you know, what were the, what were the strong points of the Ducati and the KTM? And Paco Banyai said corner speed for the Ducati. And that's like, that's, 
I mean, if you'd have told me that in 2013, I would have thought you'd com- you were completely insane. Has anyone checked in on Andrea Davizioso since Pecco uh, answered that <laughs> question? Like, can someone just knock on his door to make sure he's okay? <laughs> but yeah, there's definitely been races in the past where you said, okay, Ducati have had such a clear advantage that okay, Pecco was the best Ducati and he's won, but so clearly on the best bike that this weekend definitely wasn't one of those times. Yeah, glad to see you still have a soft spot for Dovi there, Neil. He hasn't quite left your heart. Of course, yeah, always, always thinking what he's up to. Um, speaking of soft spots, uh, Paolo Giobatti is always very open and, and you know generous with his time with uh, the media, Dave. And as we said, uh, you know, you managed to grab him after the race. He spoke about a number of subjects. So here is what uh, Paolo had to tell you. I'm here with Paolo Giobatti after a thrilling, absolutely fantastic race. Um, Peco roads, just an outstanding race, and especially really important after two crashes in the last two races. Yeah, yeah, I think no one has doubts about uh, Peco being a very fast rider, or maybe the fastest rider at the moment in MotoGP. Obviously, he proved uh, to be fighting for the podium and in, in Argentina when he crashed he was second and he was leading uh, in, in America in uh, Texas but uh, so it was very important anyway to to get points and yesterday after a difficult weekend because on Friday we were a little bit uh, in the middle of nowhere with the setup and the feeling of the bike but uh, uh, you know his team is a very good team they work together and they found out something which will make him more comfortable yesterday, still missing something something in a couple of corners, and hopefully we could see that they managed to fix almost all the sectors, and uh, well, what a race. I mean, uh, heads off to KTM and to Brad and, and, uh, and Jack, because they rode a fantastic race, but I think Pecco showed that uh, why deserves number one on the bike. Absolutely. And it was because on Friday he looked really, really, he looked really concerned. He did say, okay, we might have an idea, but we weren't sure about it. Uh, but, yeah, but I mean, I, I know Christian, I've interviewed him several times. He's an incredibly smart guy. He has a lot of smart people around him. Um, can you give us an idea of the, of, of, the, of, of the solution that you found or was it just improving the feeling? Well, uh, I, I cannot go into technical details. Also, this is not really my field, but uh, obviously, yes, I think uh, on Friday they tried different things and they just didn't work. So I think they went back to something more conventional and just uh, tried to analyze uh, uh, what were the problems. Luckily, we can, uh, uh, you know, we share the data with all the Ducati riders. And there were Ducati riders which were quite uh, competitive on Friday. So I think uh, having this, uh, this policy uh, is also helping uh, when you are in a difficult situation to try to yeah, see where, where the other Ducati riders can do, are doing better than you. And from there, you know, obviously adapting to the riders' riding style, Pecos' riding style. I think they came up with uh, a very good solution for yesterday. Maybe it was, maybe it was not enough. And uh, I know when he came back from uh, the sprint race, he said, uh, these two corners, we need to improve. And then I'm ready for, for tomorrow. And eventually they did it. But uh, also that uh, drop one position thing, honestly, I mean, I, I didn't understand because I think... Uh, the images showed that it was an aggressive pass, but they didn't touch. So, I mean, I think, uh, uh, in my opinion at least, I don't think we want to see boring races. I think we don't want to see anyone crashing in another rider, but when you are 
just uh, passing without touching him. It's more a racing thing. And uh, well, uh, anyway, uh, he didn't lose concentration, which is very important. He, you know, he, he managed to pass again Jack and then eventually pass Brad, who is a very tough guy and very, he was very fast in uh, certain sectors. So it was not an easy job, but, uh, you know, finally we won again. And uh, this is very important. We lead in a championship. Uh, if you see the standings, it's still a kind of strange championship. Marco unfortunately crashed, but Zeki crashed and still is second. So it's a little bit of a strange uh, situation, but good for Ducati. We're leading riders and manufacturers. And uh, hopefully then Enea will come back strong uh, soon because uh, we need him in the team. How, how was uh, Enea? Obviously, he tried to ride Friday and also Saturday morning and he, he couldn't quite make it. Yeah, actually, uh, before uh, coming here, we went to see the doctors uh, and they told him that uh, the bone was uh, practically fixed uh, or healed. Uh, obviously, he was missing uh, strength on the arm because uh, you lose uh, your muscles and it takes time before you can rebuild that. But um, after being so much in difficulty on the Friday and Saturday morning, he decided to go for a, an MRI scan yesterday at the Harris Hospital. Yeah. It looks like the bone is healed, but not completely. So, you know, which is a shame. Not much we can do except uh, trying to do whatever it's uh, possible to speed up the process and uh, hopefully having... Uh, fit enough to ride, to ride in Le Mans and uh, maybe 100% again in uh, Mugello. That, that's a hope. Because the most important thing is he's 100% in Mugello. Well, you know, it's our home track. It's uh, the Italian Grand Prix. It's a lot of... Uh, it's very important for, in general, for Ducati, for the Italian riders. Uh, I think Enea would like to do good there and maybe start his... Uh, um, trying to recover as many points as possible because obviously, you know, he didn't take part in the first four rounds. So it's, um, the championship is still very open. If you look where some of the top riders are standing now, looks like this, but obviously you need to start to score points uh, as soon as possible. Also, we saw in both races, we saw crashes on the, well, in corner two, really. Um, for a start, it must be very difficult as a team boss to actually watch because you see people start and you don't know how many people are going to come through the same corner. What can we do about it? Well, uh, good question, and I don't have an answer, unfortunately. It's clear that uh, the first couple of corners uh, are the normally the, the most critical ones. Uh, we could see that uh, normally it happens because a rider you know, tries to, to pass another rider and he loses the front and is uh, just taking out some other riders. So, um, very unfortunate. I'm sorry for... Uh, Oliveira again, uh, you know, he's not been very so much lucky, so lucky this uh, beginning of the season. Uh, I, I don't have an answer. Obviously, it's um, it's critical, and uh, I don't think you can ask the riders just to stay in one line and wait. So it's um, well, it's a problem. Unfortunately, I wish I had a solution. I don't have it. Uh, hopefully, no one has been. Uh, seriously injured it looks like uh, just some you know bruises or whatever and yeah, dislocated shoulder for Oliveira huh? dislocated shoulder which is which is painful luckily it's nothing broken but obviously 
it's it's a painful thing to heal so uh well it's something that um it's part of a game but uh, we saw the same thing happening with two red flags yesterday and today so maybe there should be more thinking trying to understand if and what can be done one last question because what the riders say is that the temperature and the pressure of the front tire comes up that makes it very difficult to overtake and so they have to try and make as many positions once you make positions at the start you don't lose them again so we know the mission are working on this new front tire but because of the lack of testing it makes it difficult for them to to accelerate and also the bikes keep changing which is also making it difficult um would you like to see some, maybe some more testing or to help Michelin bring this front tire more quickly? Well, as I said, uh, it's, um, it's an issue we have. Uh, I think uh, everybody involved is uh, trying to do their best in order to find a safer way for the riders to go through the first lap. It's clear, especially with the sprint race, if you are not really in the top positions in the first lap, then it's very, very difficult to to get back to the front because the race is quite short. So, and uh, more most of the times we saw riders losing losing the front and taking uh, taking out our ride our other riders. So let's see. Obviously, it's a common interest for everyone. You know, yes, today what can happen to someone, tomorrow can happen to us. So nobody wants to see that. Uh, and uh, what can I say more? Let's see if we can come up all together with a good solution. Okay. Champagne tonight or champagne tomorrow night after the test? No, tomorrow night we'll go back to Italy. So I think uh, champagne, a little bit of our usual crazy celebration in the garage as soon as Peko comes back from the press uh, duties. And, uh, and then we'll go back, go to bed early because tomorrow is a test day. Okay, thank you very much and congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Dave, well done for running around there and getting hold of Paolo Giabatti. Good to hear from him. We'll try and get some more people on the show. Uh, obviously, Sunday can be fairly chaotic, especially when we've had a second red flag. Yeah, I think I think we were lucky also because there was a bit of test on Monday, so people weren't sort of heading towards the exits. I mean, it, it can be at some races, uh, literally sort of five minutes after the uh, checkered flag has dropped, everyone's on the way to the airport. Yeah, riders seem to schedule impossibly hard flights to reach you know it means they practically have to change out the leathers and you know get running for the um you know the fast track queues at airports but uh listen we're going to fast track our way quickly into a commercial break but when we come back plenty more to talk about renthal street chain and sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency from racetrack to daily rider with over 800 fitments renthal street has a final drive solution for almost any bike use renthal.com to find the correct fitment we're back. Next talking point. Uh, I don't think we can ignore the Orange Boys, KTM. Dave, um, we, we mentioned how Ducati have their fleet. They have uh, a massive data they can recall on, they can call on at any point uh, with a motorcycle that's highly refined over the previous two years. KTM, for once, had a similar kind of reserve thanks to Pedrosa's recent test here and, of course, his utter mastery and, and, you know, what a guy, being able to finish six, six and seven across the weekend at 37 years old. Um, okay, I mean, Pedrosa knows this track like the back of his hand, not only from his racing days, but from his recent activities. But you could see, you know, the, the, the approach that KTM took to this weekend, it worked. I mean, it was the team's best ever qualifying performance. Um, Brad Binder and um, Jack Miller going 4-2 on the grid. And, you know, Neil, all, all four race starts we saw, the KTMs were just vying for the whole shot. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a couple of the guys um, that weren't on KTM's were saying, you know, chapeau to them. Um, I think Alexis Bargo was just, he, he, I think he had four starts in every single start because of the two red flags. Each one, um, KTM's beat him, both of them, from the first row and the second row into turn number one. Um, so, yeah, what they've done is, you know, I don't think they had the fastest bike this weekend, but they had a bike that was absolutely brilliant in the kind of battle that uh, we saw at the front of, of both the sprint and the, the feature race. Um, you know, they could start well, they could get in front, and then they could break ridiculously late um, so they could defend uh, or overtake if there was a bike ahead. Um, and it wasn't just that, because at the end of the race, I mean, Brad Binder set his personal best lap on the final lap. Jack Miller was like, what, just over a second, I think, away at the checkered flag, but Miller was setting his personal best laps up until the final laps as well. So it was, um, you know, it was a pretty astonishing performance from them. Um, you know, a little apprehensive because we've been here before with KTM 2020 most notably when they had a great season then didn't quite bring that into the following year um, they had a little spell in 2021 when Miguel Oliveira won in Barcelona was on the podium at Mugello uh, pushed Mark really hard at the Saxon ring and then completely disappeared in the second half of the season I'm a little apprehensive to say like yes they have arrived but you you just got a feeling that the fact that it was Pedroza, Miller, and Binder qualifying so well and performing so well in the races that this is, you know, this is the start of something like, you know, quite common. You mentioned twenty one. Maybe you know that showed the 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 narrow margin there because they everything hinged on Oliveira basically. And when he broke his wrist in the crash in Red Bull Ring, then that kind of skewed his season. And then you know Binder wasn't at the same in the same kind of place competitively and then that was things ruined but now like you say there seem to be several riders Augusto Fernandez again taking points when all look lost you know through qualification uh, that situation with Tech 3 uh, is is not like it was last year, Dave? No, no, exactly. And of course, they've lost their best rider. Paul Spargo is still out, uh, and otherwise, to, you know, Paul, you'd expect Paul to be uh, uh, to be contributing. Um, the sense I get is that do, the difference between now and 2020, 2021 is that KTM have a really clear sense of direction. I thought Alicia Spargo was very clear about what the uh, what the Ducat or what the KTM could do well, which is overtake. Uh, the bike is, you know, plenty fast, but it hasn't been built for a fast lap time. It's been built to fight. In, this is one of the big problems in a in a class where overtaking is difficult because of the ride height devices and the uh, and the aero uh, and this front tire. I think it's a really smart decision to build a bike where you can attack, where you can pass, and then just like keep people behind you. It's um, almost like old fashioned five hundred racing, where you know the Honda NSR was um, uh, uh, it was sort of you get in, park it, and then come out. And you see the, the, the Yamaha quite often was really, really fast with the uh, Quattararo on board, but it did him absolutely no good. And we saw exactly the same with Aleish. That bike is incredibly fast, really fast, but um, it can't start properly. It isn't as good at battling. It has problems with uh, with, with front tyre temperature. So, yeah, I mean, K KTM have a clear uh, identity, a clear concept, a clear sense of direction. I think that's where they're benefiting. Yeah, I think in, in maybe previous seasons, there hasn't been that exactly clear idea of what the bike should be because let's face it when they've came into MotoGP a lot of the staff that they had hired to be part of the MotoGP product project had come from Honda the bike for you know all intents and purposes was a, a sort of variation on the RC213V um, 
And obviously, recently, they've realized that Jucadio are the benchmark and they need to try and replicate some of the things that Jucadio are doing, um, you know, during their um, their preseason presentation back in January, I think it was, or maybe early February. I remember Francesco Guidotti saying that qualifying was terrible uh, last year, but once they analyzed the race rhythm, they realized that actually, you know, if you took away the first three or four laps of the race in 2022, they weren't a million miles away in terms of rhythm. And therefore, if they could sort of change the qualifying around, um, then suddenly they would be in a, a much better place. And they hired, obviously, Miller, Paul Espargaro, who are two guys who have pretty decent qualifying records, obviously some very key Ducati personnel as well to come in and help with things. Um, and yeah, it's good. And someone said to me over the weekend, can you imagine if they had convinced Miguel Oliveira to stay? I mean, maybe Miguel Oliveira being the unfortunate figure that he is would have got knocked off even if he was on the KTM. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you would say that there would be, you know, and Paul Despargo was fit, there, you know, there could have been more KTMs up at the front, not just the three of them. Yeah, th- th- I, I mean, it just occurred to me, the thought that I had is that um, maybe KTM hired these people away from Ducati not to try to turn the KTM into into a Ducati, but to try to understand what makes a Ducati for fast and to try to build a bike which can beat the Ducatis. So to understand how to attack the Ducatis. Yeah, and I would say Ducati are obviously the guys at the top of the class, the guys that are ruling the roost in MotoGP currently, but there has to be some slightly concerned people in Bologna looking at KTM now because um, it's, it's, it's not just the fact that they have two good riders, two great riders, in fact, um, that they have a very competitive bike, but they have that sort of aggression and ability to react super quickly like Ducati do, that, you know, they're they're going to be a figure, aren't they? They're going to be a factor. They have to be the closest competitors. I mean, Aprilia are using four bikes for the first time this year. This is a concept KTM have for a couple of years now. So they have to be further down the road in terms of being able to use that extra data. And as we know, the Japanese are struggling. Takanakagami got in the top 10, Dave, but at one point he was 12th. That was the top Japanese bike during the race. Yeah, yes. I mean, like Yamaha had a complete nightmare uh, here. So you you have to sort of like disregard them a little bit for for other reasons. the difference, uh, and I think where KTM are doing better than, than Aprilia, is that uh, KTM basically have four times the same bikes instead of having uh, much the same as, as Ducati have with Ducati and Pramac. Um, it, it's much easier to learn things when you're using identical bikes. If the bikes are slightly different, then you have to try to make a little sort of a translation step. And the next step, I wonder, I mean, you know, the Pira Mobility Group has a couple more brands that it could be slapping on the grid. And I think they would benefit enormously from having a couple of um, uh, 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 Husqvarna RC16s. Uh, or MV Augustus. Or CF Motors. Or CF Motors, yeah, yeah. Take your pick. I mean, six bikes on the grid that would really turn things up. Yeah, then I think then I think uh, Ducati would be would be justified in being terrified. So ju- just to wrap up the KTM thing before we hear from Francesco, we should be surprised, shouldn't we? Jack Miller was two seconds off the pace in Sepang, but clearly the guys were going through a working process. Uh, I think most race fans around the world will be looking and thinking, how on earth have they turned that around? Yeah. And I, even I was conservatively saying on the podcast, I think you have, need to give him a half a season before he's looking like he's going to be in podium contention. And here we are around four and he's fighting for race wins. The second thing is, can in this slightly weird MotoGP season where we're seeing different people excel, a KTM here to stay at the top? I mean, if we look at the improvements... Um, you know, here last year, Brad Binder was a top rider, finished 10th, 20 seconds away from Peko Bagnaya, 
considerably closer this time. Uh, you know, KTM were 12th in the USA last year in Texas in Cota. This year, Miller's in podium contention before he slips off. Victory contention, according to him. Yeah, and it wasn't. It was more a, like a freak thing. It wasn't a, like he was stretching the limits of the motorcycle. And then, you know, uh, six in Argentina last year for Binder, and he wins the sprint this time. So there's been notable improvements. And I think the qualification says it all, Dave, because uh, Binder only made the front row once last season. One time he was there. Now he was fourth, just on the tip of the second row, but it was enough. I mean, I don't think he... It was maybe half a dozen occasions where he was higher than 12th. And we've been saying for a long time, give Binder a decent bike, put Binder on a Ducati, and he's going to win races. And finally, he seems to be how to have a platform... You know, that it's not just in Bruno or Valencia where he was given a new chassis, where he could really be a rider that troubles the top of the standings. Yeah, no, I mean, I think KTM are... Uh, I mean, winning a championship is different to actually being competitive. I think KTM are 100% competitive. There's a lot more goes into into winning a championship. But yeah, I mean, they're here. They're, they're, like I say, because they have an identity, an idea of what they're doing, I think they are uh, very much uh, here to stay and and will be competitive over the long term. Let's just see how Le Mans and Mugello go because we had this situation in 2020 where they were performing fantastically well at tracks that Pedroza had tested at a couple of weeks prior to the 2020 season kick, kicking off or restarting again after the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, yeah, let's hold our judgments as to whether they're going to be championship challenges until, let's say, after Mugello, for example, because um, well, I mean, let's give, it till, let's give it till the summer break. Yeah. Like I think, no, after eight races, then we'll really know. Also, there'll be a much, much clearer cha- um, uh, picture of the championship. Uh, yeah, I think like after Sachs or after Assen, we will know for sure whether they are uh, going to be causing real headaches in Bologna. Funnily enough, that was pretty much what Francesco Guidotti um, had to tell us. So uh, without further ado, here is the Red Bull KTM team manager. Francesco, thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, what a weekend. I mean, this is a big milestone for the company in terms of the performance, but also the results. Uh, the, the atmosphere in the garage must be pretty electric right now. Yes, it is. Uh, since uh, the beginning of the season, we are really enjoying the, the, the races. Uh, we are growing, growing like uh, uh, even faster than uh, we expect because uh, we changed quite a lot of things uh, uh, inside, the, inside the group. Uh, we changed a little bit of our method and uh, uh, so I thought that there was, uh, there was need to, to the need of more more time before everybody get used. Uh, looks like uh, everything is uh, everybody's in a mission. Everybody's uh, really committed at home in the in the quarter. The engineers and uh, mechanics, uh, technicians in general, everybody involved in this project, uh, even from financials and uh, accounting. Yeah, everybody is. Uh, we can we can feel the the support. We can see the support. Uh, provide material. Also tomorrow, one one day test. Uh, we have uh, plenty of things to to, to test uh, during the winter. Uh, during the winter test, we we did a massive job. Thanks uh, thanks to the to the past the, the factory provide us so it's a real it's a real group result this one and uh, we have to thanks all the, the effort of everyone involved all the partners and sponsor and supplier uh, yeah first of all Red Bull that uh, give us wings <laughs> for 
for for results like uh, like today. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead. We are thinking a very good uh, in a good way. Francesco, uh, there's a lots of smiles in the in the pit box. You can see that now. But in Sepang, the the faces and in Portugal, so the faces are a little bit more serious. Were you? I mean, you say things move faster than you expected, but uh, you know, the, to be challenging for wins by round four, that's quite a surprise for many fans, I think. Yes, as I said, uh, we changed quite a lot, and during the winter test, uh, we had we were forced to do a certain kind of uh, of, uh, of job, not looking too much to the to the performance itself. So, but once uh, the the season starts in Portimao. Who, we were we were ready. Especially Jack was uh, was uh, was already with a good feeling. Uh, he was uh, pretty fast on qualifying, uh, where we improved uh, quite a lot compared to, to last year. And um, I mean, uh, the smile comes with the results. The smile comes with a good atmosphere in the in the in the team where everybody is. Um, it's uh, let's say allow and have the freedom to to express uh, uh, himself in the respect of uh, the work of the the one uh, beside. So this is important to to have a very good relationship among the the team members. And uh, yeah, as I said again, uh, it's important to have uh, the support from the factory, technical support, uh, but on, on, not only because also from the management, uh, uh, they really trust in us and uh, they give. Uh, the trustness to, to make the change uh, from uh, from last year. Uh, yeah, uh, I I will never be tired to to say this. This is uh, not a team uh, work. This is a a, a a project. Everybody involved in the project that put uh, their own effort. One of the strong things of the team seems to be the relationship the riders have with the crews, the crew chiefs. You know, they seem very tight. I mean, Brad, after some years being with the team, but Jack has come in seamlessly. Um, would you agree? Is that one of the the thing that one of the things that's so so strong with the fans don't necessarily see so much? We know how important uh, is uh, this uh, this atmosphere in the team, and uh, it's made uh, by also little details. And um, the relationship between uh, technician and riders is so it's it's, it's crucial. And also the, the relationship between the, the two riders uh, is crucial. And they have a huge respect each other. They have a, a strong uh, friendship. And they live in the same uh, in the same place. They train together, also in between races. So yeah, we know how good is uh, Brad. Uh, as a personal, you know, on a personal wise, and uh, everybody knows uh, Jack because uh, he's, he's a little bit more popular and uh, he's uh, uh, since more time in this uh, in this world. So he's a team player, uh, 100% and full-time team player. And yeah, it's important. Everything is important. This is uh, uh, teamwork. This is a teamwork uh, more and more because uh, the bikes are so sophisticated and uh, technician has to be good technician but has to be also a good team player. Uh, yeah, looks like uh, we are we are in the right in the right way to 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 improve a little bit more. Just two more questions, uh, Francesco. Firstly, there was two starts, you know, this weekend, two red flags from MotoGP. It seems pretty crazy out there. And I imagine from your position in the garage, it can get a bit tense. Um, also, some strange decisions from race direction when you can see the guys flight fighting so close, but it's kind of clean. Um, how do you see the whole thing going on at the moment from your perspective? 
A bad red flag uh, is uh, just because of uh, Danny. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, Danny. Ah, okay, Danny. We. I would spend two words uh, about Danny. That. Uh, yeah, it was uh, difficult to find the word, the, right, the, the proper word, the right word to to describe his uh, weekend and also the the job of the test team during this weekend. That it was not not easy, as you said, for the red flags, but uh, but also during the qualifying uh, start to rain was. Uh, completely unexpected and they were ready they were ready with a rain bike they were ready with a, with a, the dry one so they did a, a super good job in a very difficult situation and a difficult and unusual situation uh, about red flag uh, yeah uh, looks like uh, looks like uh, the circuit the runoff area the safety area getting uh, smaller and smaller because of uh, new the new new speed of the of the bike new uh, so yeah we have to consider we have to consider it for 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 the future uh, luckily luckily there was no any rider hitting the the, the air fence but there was uh, the bike hitting the, the air fence broken it and then uh, red flagging because uh, for safety for safety reason uh, about the contact between uh, between uh, Jack and uh, and and Peko. According to me, there was absolutely no sense give uh, give uh, a penalty to to Peko. It was a clear, clear, super clear race uh, incident. They touch each other. I don't know who touch who touch who because uh, Jack uh, went white. He was uh, coming back to the to the to the line, and uh, Peko, of course, tried to to overtake. If we if we make a penalty for for this action, then uh, then our sports are going to to an end. So for me, it was uh, no no sense. I mean, senseless, senseless. This uh, this uh, this uh, drop uh, drop position for for people. And then lastly, uh, Brad and Jack, third and fourth now in the World Championship. But it's been a strange season so far because we see Ducati dominate in Portugal, Honda win in Texas. Do you think uh, the message has to be, OK, guys, calm a little bit? Or, you know, have KTM arrived? Can we see this sort of performance every week? Ah, you know, we were ninth before this uh, race. Now we are third. And uh, we were fourth in the manufacturer. Now we are second. I mean, after four races, the, the the classification is is still too short to to make a to make a proper and realistic uh, uh, consideration. So we have to wait after um, Mugello at least to have a more clear picture and to understand better what could happen in the in the future. Francesca, thanks ever so much for your time, and uh, we'll see you in Le Mans. Thank you. We're back for the final section of the show. Let's talk about the race stewards, Dave. Uh, at one point, let's be honest, it added to the drama of the race. Uh, but, you know, the inconsistency here, I think, is... Uh, I mean, just to give listeners an example, uh, when the replay ap appeared of Fabio Quattararo exiting the long lap, for which he was given another long lap penalty, he was slightly across the white line. There were sort of, you know, some boos and um, gestures in the media center of how pathetic it all looked. Uh, I mean, Quattararo blatantly wasn't trying to shorten the long lap penalty. I mean, Miller in the press conference said, fair enough, we know it. We can't do it. We can't touch the white. He deserved another one, which is one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is that it's kind of uh, it's excessive. It's, it's a little over the top. And, um, you know, if you're going to punish 
Bagnaia then punish Marini for hitting Bastianini and Portimao or, you know, throw the book harder at Mark and try and get your word in right this time. Uh, there's things going on here that I think there needs to be more transparency. There needs to be some sort of overview. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think of all the, the things we saw yesterday, that was the one that I maybe would argue against the least because, as Simon Crifar said during the, the live feed, the riders know exactly the rules in that case and Fabio just breached them ever so slightly. Yes, it was it was harsh. I mean, the fact that he had a long lap penalty in the first place was an absolute joke. That was just insanity. When that was renounced, like, I'm a very, uh, uh, I would say, a level-headed person, but even I started getting pretty angry and pretty wound up. What did he do, Neil, to deserve the what penalty? What did he do? Exactly, yeah. He, um, yeah, he, he found himself in the middle of two guys going into a pack turn two, and, uh, you know, because he brushed against Marco Bezzecchi, he then fell into Miguel Oliveira, but how can you think that he did anything that was overly aggressive or wrong? He was just there. As or he intentional? Said, or I intentional. think it's yeah. just sandwich. He was just, he was just, he was just there, is what he said. When Joan Mir, uh, I, I went to the Repsol Honda uh, debrief and spoke to Joan Mir, and I said, do you think Fabio deserved the penalty? He went, Fabio? He was absolutely shocked that uh, Quattro had been uh, given a penalty because to him, uh, it was uh, Bezeki. He was said. He said he was really worried about about Bezeki. I mean, like I think if that is a little bit harsh uh, uh, on Bezeki. Um, the, uh, turn two is a very difficult place because you, there's lots of lines through turn one, and then it narrows down to like one line in turn two. It's basically like try, trying to filter down. It's always going uh, going to cause problems. Um, uh, there, I don't think Quattro did anything wrong there. He was just stuck. It's the it's the opening lap. You're there. It, like it was like uh, uh, there's a I think a, a James Bond movie which plays in Venice where a James Bond shoots his uh, his uh, uh, fa- his uh, swanky um, uh, boat right between two uh, two ships which are closing together. Um, and it was exactly like that. You know, like he um, only not the James Bond boat, the other one, <laughs> uh, the one which was chasing him. Because yeah, he was basically he was. Had he, he was in a gap which closed on, well, which closed on him. There was nothing that he could do. But the one thing that all of the riders said was just consistency. We want to know what the rules are. We want to know what we'll get as a penalty. Yeah, I mean, that was daft. And then we've already meet, mentioned it, but the Banyaya penalty was absolutely ridiculous as well. As Dave said, really difficult to understand. I was quite worried whenever I saw Ayumusisaki in Argentina was asked to drop a position for, I think he was passing David Almanza coming out of turn five in the wet race. I'm not sure if there was contact, but Almanza had to lift up because Ayumu accelerated <coughs> underneath him. Um, an aggressive move, yes, but not a dirty move. <coughs> and that was that was crazy. Um, and I thought, okay, I've been told at the start of this year that stewards were going to act in a more vigilant uh, way with Moto3. They were going to be tougher uh, with that class because, um, you know, Moto3, they need to have a bit of tough stewarding because, you know, they're younger and more ex- inexperienced. Yeah, and also it's more difficult to pass in Moto3. And there, ironically, there was no first court turn, well, first lap crashes in this Grand Prix. Right, right. But um, but yeah, the the Banyai thing. I mean, it was it was an aggressive move, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't anything untoward. Even if Jack Miller got a little bit upset at it, it was uh, it was just a a good, strong willed overtake. Can and you imagine how many races would have been ruined if they um, uh, like the historic races that we've seen here? Yeah, Rossi on Gibernau. doing on Cravillo, Mark on uh, on Lorenzo. Yeah. 
Lorenzo and Pedrosa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dovizioso, Pedrosa, um, and was it Lorenzo? Mar- yeah, Lorenzo uh, 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 turned six, yeah. Basically, like no one will finish. You have to let these people race. There has to be some context because the race stewards have to know the bikes are heavier. They're making more downforce. You know, the aerodynamics are permitting the riders having to take more risks to overtake. So I think if someone does make an attempt and comes marginally close to contact, then you shouldn't have a penalty. If anything, you should be encouraging it. Maybe they need to look at it more and say consequences. If Bagnaia had made that move into Miller and smacked him offline and Miller had lost three positions, then maybe you take an action. But then Miller... Uh, almost smacked into Jorge Martin at the final turn. Martin had to pick up and lost three positions and there was no penalty. And this is the thing that's causing the riders such distress, this lack of consistency. I mean, I think it would be worrying if they did penalise uh, Miller in that instance. They were right not to. But where? Uh, how can you say that is yeah. uh, not a penalty and then the one before? Yeah, nobody... Is a penalty? Yeah, nobody knows the line. And this is the, the, the this is the problem. I did ask, sort of ask, are you afraid of making moves? And they said, well, uh, look, basically everyone's uh, thing was, you know, look, we're racist. We're always going to uh, try and get forgiveness rather than permission. But still, it is, they know that these these penalties, and that's got to play on your mind. Yeah, exactly. And once again, the stewards are getting an absolute kick in on social media, among the media. Uh, among everyone. Among, among I was talking to senior people in the paddock and they were absolutely fuming and what have they said about it where is the explanation where is the justification for their way of thinking there's not even an interview on the the MotoGP.com website in which someone from Dorna has gone and stuck a microphone under Freddie Spencer's mouth for him to give an explanation there's just nothing and it's just like I think everyone's just at a complete end with this sort of process with the lack yeah. of transparency and the lack of consistency is Freddie Spencer even here I mean maybe it's just a That's name good. that MotoGP have been using for a couple of years and he pops up at one or two events he could be watching it from home <laughs> no he he definitely is here but we you, we literally never see him unless you sort of like stay in the uh, uh, stay in the expensive Erta Hotel or, or, or uh, Dorna Hotel with the with the bosses you, you never see him is it a can of worms mentality though David if you start trying to wheel out race stewards for every decision you know then riders will start saying well, what about the move i had you know made on me for 12th place on lap six nobody saw that and i've got tire marks on my boot we're not talking about every single move but moves that have a very uh, big impact on the outcome of the race need to be explained another thing that joan mir said was it's it it's like the stewards only see the moves which are on uh, where the cameras are on and i remember talking to uh, kenny noyes back in in the in the early years of uh, of Moto Two, he sort of said, uh, uh, "Yeah, the the stewards are looking at the at the front of the field, um, or race directors are looking at the front of the field, but they don't see what's going on, on the in, in the middle because mid pack it was absolute, you know, murder." Yeah, well, actually, I'm going to push the podcast forward a little bit now because my loser from the weekend was going to be the confusing image of MotoGP because we all get revved by the sprint. It's fantastic entertainment on a very busy Saturday. The Grand Prix race is incredibly close. We don't really know who's going to win right up until turn 13. But then, you know, you do have all this reaction on social media where people are calling the series a joke and is there's a lack of professionalism in it. You know, there's there's things being determined in the race results that are not, a consequence of the action or the competitiveness of the riders so uh, you know at the moment i feel MotoGP is in a in a big transition when it comes to how people perceive it and uh, i think you know they have to be careful and they have to lay down some hard groundwork otherwise you're going this rolling um polemic is going to is this going to continue where people think oh it's fantastic let's get more but then people are crashing or getting injured or being unfairly penalized and having their championship chances being ruined so that's my loser but 
Anyway, to come back to the structure of the podcast, um, the other significant <laughs> news that we had from the weekend was the announcement of the uh, the Women's World Championship. Can we just call it that for the moment? Yes, of course. Well, actually, that's kind of indicative, really, of the press conference, I thought, because while I applaud the initiative and the proactiveness, I felt with the FIM really just wanted to get in front of a camera and say, we're doing something um, yeah. and something's going to happen, but we don't really know what it's going to be. Um, basic details, there's going to be a six-round series next year running concurrently with World Superbike in 2024, but could be appearing at MotoGP events in 2025. Uh, it's going to be open to women. They want to encourage women from across the world to take part. But curiously, there are no women-only foundation series you could say well why aren't there more girls in the red bull rookies that's that's a counter argument and it's going to be based on super sport machinery uh thoughts dave uh i i mean like i am for making motorcycle racing as inclusive as possible because the more inclusive it is the bigger it is the more money there is in the sport uh the, the more there is to enjoy you know i mean like if you're a football fan you don't want to only watch the uh, the world cup you actually want to watch uh, I don't know, Bolton lose. Dave, don't get into football. Three. Don't get into football analogies. <laughs> but uh, but you, you want you want to have a broad sense of sport, also because it it secures the future of the sport. If there's a, uh, the more people who are actually engaged in the sport, the 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 less the more difficult it becomes to actually you know um, stop get circuits closed down, get motocross tra- tracks closed down, uh, have people want to shut everything down for it being dangerous, all the rest of it. So you it have to be doing it inclusively. This is completely the wrong way because what you're saying is, look, you ladies, uh, uh, you, uh, you you delicate things, you'll have to have your own little separate series and uh, we'll paint all your bikes pink and you'll like it. Um, what they should be doing is, is, I mean, what we need is lots of eight-year-old girls riding around on ovales. The more young kids are riding eventually, because it's a numbers game, it's just a funnel. It's a, 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 a talent is a funnel. You put lots of kids in at the bottom and at the end you end up with, I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo or Valentino Rossi. You said it the other day, if you want Asian riders in the World Championship, do it, launch an Asian talent cup. Exactly. And with the British Talent Cup and the Northern Talent Cup and uh, uh, and all the all these other other Talent Cup, uh, I, I think it would be really good to have an all female Talent Cup series uh, at that level, just to to channel the way uh, things through. But this is being promoted as the pinnacle of women's racing, and I think that is terrible. What what you want if you want to what you want is is another channel for the funnel another uh, source of talent um uh, and like i see no i do not believe there is any physical impediment for women to race against men at the very highest level the only impediment right now is there are not enough uh, potentially talented young girls going into the sport to come through to the pinnacle um you know, anna Carrasco was super sport 300 world champion but oh, goodness me talk about few and far between uh, i mean there's nothing to stop girls getting into the british talent cup or the red bull rookies going for that but like dave says maybe you just have to start earlier support them earlier because my main fear with this series is that you have a world championship for women and like in mxgp with wmx uh, the first few years you have such a big depth of the, the talent range you have two or three four girls that can train get themselves in good shape that are fast and technical and you know the 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 girls down in 15th place are doing lap times ridiculously slower and there's even safety implications then yeah exactly and then that just sort of impacts on the watchability of the event the seriousness with which people take the the series in itself um i agree with dave you know 
I think that the, the best idea is to have a sort of uh, a, a talent spotting series like one of the you know the, the British Talent Cup for uh, women or young teenage girls around Europe to try and funnel them into um, you know junior GP or Red Bull rookies, um, which then will eventually hopefully lead them on to um, the world championship. But yeah, I mean, Anna Carrasco proved she was a world champion. Uh, top 10 finisher in Moto3, uh, Maria Herrera has proved in Spanish championship winning races there um, that there's no physical um, drawback to being a woman. It's just a case of um, people putting their trust in uh, young girls' talents um, and giving them the, the necessary support to reach um, a, a championship like Junior GP or, or Moto3. It's going to be a busy couple of weeks on the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, we're back to Superbike duties. Actually, we're missing Steve on the MotoGP show, but um, he's busy enough in the Superbike. Uh, Catalonia next weekend, I believe, uh, if I'm correct. Uh, we will also be running a show with Nicolò Gobert talking about the new era of Moto E, which is popping up at the next Grand Prix in Le Mans. Uh, I don't think we'll be enjoying 30 degree temperatures at that one, Neil. Maybe we'll need to get a few more layers in the suitcase for the. But but let's things wrap things up from Jerez. Um, I mentioned my. Let's do the losers first. I, me- I mentioned mine, Dave. Who who for you was the big loser from this race? I mean, for me, well, <laughs> apart from the sport of MotoGP, thanks for, to the woeful standard of stewarding, for me, the loser is Yamaha. You know, Franco Morbidelli gets a, a, a gets a long lap for being involved in the crash in the sprint race. Uh, Fabio Quattararo gets a long lap for being involved in the sprint ra- in a crash in the um, uh, in the main race. Um, they were never competitive. They struggled. They couldn't qualify um, at the front. The reason that Fabio Quartararo it gets involved in a crash in turn two is because he started in fifteenth and not in you know not on the not on the front row. So, uh, but they were there were times where Quartararo was really fast. If you look at his race pace, they just couldn't set a fast lap with a with with a new tire. So the uh, Yamaha here are really big losers. Also on the weekend when the top brass were here to introduce uh, Valentino Rossi as a brand ambassador for, for Yamaha. It was a chronic problem because Quattararo has, has never performed this poorly at this track and the Yamaha is supposed to, well the M1 is supposed to be updated for this year so that's a a pretty hefty alarm bell. Yeah, horsepower isn't everything. You know, the the the, 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 the horsepower of the engine is now acceptable. It's the rest of the bike which is the problem. Now, who was your loser? Uh, my loser was Miguel Oliveira, not through any fault of his own, but um, a guy that has just really no luck in MotoGP, it seems. Um, taken out of the uh, the main race, uh, dislocated shoulder. We're yet to learn on Monday morning of the extent of the injury. Yeah, I spoke to Wilco Zielenberg just as we were entering the media centre and um, uh, basically said there's some cartilage damage. Um, they're expecting it to heal if he just rests. Um, it's going to be difficult. They're sort of hoping that he'll be able to race at, uh, at Le Mans. Uh, but if he can't race at Le Mans, then you know at least he's got a long time off until you know it'll be five weeks till Mugello. Lorenzo Savadori is riding his bike today, uh, in uh, because there's things to test, but also just to prepare in case uh, uh, he's there at Le Mans. Yeah, and another weekend where Miguel had great speed, um, you know, really competitive in qualifying and the sprint, and was on for a good race. Uh, you know, was on for a good race. I think without this, uh, without this incident, he. Got nerfed out wide at turn one, which caused him to be so far back when they got to turn two. Um, and just checking last night, uh, the seventh time that Miguel's been taken out in his MotoGP career. Um, yeah, Silverstone 19, I think there were tw- two times in, Her- in 2020, 2019, 
two times in 2021, and we've had four races this year. He's already been taken out twice. Yeah, the incident was with Brad Binder here, right, in the first corner of Jerez. That, yeah. well, I mean, that even led to some questions yesterday that the KTM pair, you know, were there any concern about crashing into each other? Because I'm sure that would not have gone down well uh, <laughs> with Pit Byer and the rest of the Austrian hierarchy. But uh, yeah, you're right, Neil. But then, you know, what about this old cliche that you make your own luck? I mean, Miguel, is he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or is it just some Needs strategy? to qualify on pole. Yeah. Yeah, his qualifying record has never been that good, to be fair. But um, yeah. He is in the wrong place at the wrong time, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then Portuguese fans, I'm sure, another reason just to get all head up, so not good news. And funny that you mentioned Andrea De Vizioso, because maybe he could be tempted back for another run with the RNF team if they need another uh, substitute rider. Who knows? I don't don't mean to set your heart racing, so uh, apologies for getting your hopes up. Uh, Winners? Uh, I mean, you know, the winner is the winner. Uh, Pekka Banyaya for a lot of reasons, for uh, sorting his head out, fixing the fact that you know, it, things could have gone badly. He sorted his head out. He is uh, competitive. Um, he, he came back from two, cra- from two crashes to win a really tight race, uh, you know, a podium in the sprint race and, uh, and win the Grand Prix. They, he arrived on Friday and the bike wasn't competitive. By the time we got to Sunday, he's capable of winning. This was, this was, if you are in, if you're at all interested in winning a, a, a MotoGP championship, this is exactly what you needed to do. It was just championship worthy. And he's now leading the championship. Exactly. And he's, I think he, I, I would be surprised if he, if someone else leads it for the rest of the year. Yeah. The- I have the impression that Peko could go on a run now. And let's face it, he's leading the championship despite losing 45 points in the last two races. So, Yeah, Ducat is a good at Le Mans, Mugello, uh, Saxon Ring, you know, who knows, uh, and Assen, you know, the decent run Assen. And Le Mans, the biggest rival is usually the weather. Yeah. Uh, that could throw thing. We know Bagnaia is not the, he's strong, but he's not the strongest rider in the wet. Um, but yeah, Mugello, like you're saying, Assen, nil. Oh, goodness. Uh, win a few. Uh, the winner is the winner, but in Model 2. Uh, Sam Lowe's, I think, was or is deserving of this uh, this prestigious award uh, because he was just, he was fabulous, really. Um, I don't think many saw his, uh, I could see him on the podium, certainly, yesterday, but I didn't think anyone was going to have an answer for Pedro Acosta. Some of Acosta's rhythm on Friday afternoon at Jerez was absolutely sensational. And he's coming here on the crest of a wave. Sam, by contrast, was coming here after a pretty disappointing race in Austin where he finished 13th. Um, but he said from the moment he exited pit lane uh, in P1, uh, he felt really good on the bike. His confidence was good. And he's been saying all year, I mean, even though the results haven't quite been uh, up to scratch, um, his rhythm in the first two races, Coda was not great. But in Argentina and in um, in Portugal, his rhythm was, was podium rhythm, um, both in wet and dry. Um, it was just the, the qualifying was bad. Uh, starts were bad and he I think found himself outside the points in every single first lap uh, in the first three races so you're never going to come back and finish in the podium from there um, but here he had a sensational pole position half a second faster than the rest yeah but uh, Peter Baum who is you know he's won a Moto2 championship with Stefan Radl uh, uh, as a crew chief he was shocked that Sam managed to get half a second it, it means that if Sam can go half a second faster than everyone else on a Calyx the same as everyone else has got uh, then really you know he was doing something special and there's a lot of margin yeah exactly and he actually said after the race that uh, he had something in his pocket mid-race he felt 
pretty comfortable. He wasn't expending too much energy, wasn't pushing himself too far. Um, so it was a really classy performance. Um, his first victory, obviously, since uh, his, uh, his, his serious left shoulder dislocation last year. Um, and, you know, he talked yesterday about some of the dark moments he had. He thought towards the end of last season that he wasn't going to be here full stop this year because he had lost his enjoyment, lost his belief, wasn't sure his shoulder was ever going to heal properly to the level that he needed to perform at this at this uh, at this level, but um, he is he's back, you would say, and you know you don't want to get ahead of yourself. But it was a, it was a good showing, and I think it shows that Sam can have a, a good season, maybe five for the top three in the championship. Yeah, thirty two years old, very much sort of the father of the class. It was funny seeing him in the press conference there, wedged between two younger riders, Alonso Lopez and Pedro Acosta. And to beat Acosta here in that sort of form, you know, in front of that public, Dave, that was a very noteworthy performance. It was. Resembling of the Sam Lowe's from 2016. So uh, let's see if he can pull it out of the bag. Although I think all three of us were crossing our fingers on the last two laps. He wasn't going to drop it. Yeah, I think uh, Sam Lowe's was crossing his fingers <laughs> on the last two laps. <laughs> yeah. But uh, he said, you know, he'd been talking to his mental coach about it. It was something that he's been working on, which, you know, shows that he's still like dedicated and, and has the belief that the, he can do this. Uh, my winner is Jack Miller. Uh, simply because, as I mentioned earlier, in, in Sepang, in preseason testing, it looked like it, it was the wrong move. You know, uh, while he has his crew chief, he has his whole sub-team there within the team, uh, and the promise was there, it didn't really look like the transition was was working. And, um, you know, he arrived That's what here. testing is for. That's what testing's for. Yeah, Dave, you're right. And, um, but I think the, the view, the wider view of people was that he was in trouble, or KTM were in trouble, and look what's happened. I think he's been competitive in pretty much every GP, top five in Portugal from the bat, uh, you know, Texas, as we mentioned. And then here, I know he won in 2021. Uh, he's very good around this circuit. But uh, he was in play right until the end um, in pretty much both races. Uh, he was joking with us on Thursday in his media debrief that he was kind of thinking of buying a boat, um, you know, if he if he'd won here this weekend uh, with part of the win bonus. But, uh, you know, the, the joke almost came true. He'll be buying a boat later this year. <laughs> yeah. Which is something I, I didn't think we would be saying um, this early in the season. Um, yeah. Whatever you do, listener, don't go back and listen to our season preview. Do, yeah. do not. <laughs> yeah. Do not go back, please. We, we don't really know anything before it's happened. Although, can I just say my fantasy team, I put both Binder and Miller in on Saturday morning. Um, quite a shrewd move. Yeah, I put both Aprilia's in and that is, was not a shrewd. Maverick Especially not with Maverick's, Maverick's chain broke in the, uh, on the last lap. That was shocking. He's not to be trusted for a fantasy team. Yeah, I mentioned to him yesterday, I said, you're killing my fantasy team, Maverick. And, uh, you know, his, his man friend, his helper said, yeah, he's doing the same to me as well. <laughs> and Maverick looked at us both and said, complain to Aprilia, not to me. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks ever so much to Rental Street for continuing to back the podcast. Also to KTM. Great to have them on board as partners this year, whether it's in uh, Gas Gas or Husqvarna, guys. We'll be talking a bit about Husqvarna, actually, as we lead up to the uh, German Grand Prix that's not too far away. Send us any comments or feedback on Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. We do read them. We try to squeeze them in where we can. Um, as you might be able to hear, probably not. Uh, there's testing going on behind us, so we're going to have to wrap things up here in Jerez. But we'll be back next week, of course, with like we said with the Superbike Show and preview in Le Mans. Thanks for listening.
you know, if you put monkeys in front of typewriters in a room long enough, they would eventually come up with work of Shakespeare. Yes, I'm going to go and get some monkeys. 